Welcome to the JLA cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John, and I'm a writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ, and I am the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Troll Tooth Wars. PJ, it's come full circle. I had the, the blurb open in front of me. Because for the last 20 episodes or so, I haven't trusted myself <laughs> to be able to read it correctly. And then I just did it flawlessly. So flawlessly that I closed my eyes. I didn't even read it. Oh, someone's getting cocky yeah. in the last episode. <laughs> Flying without wings here, PJ. I, um, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've learned something. I finally learned something. I'm, um, I'm competent. Barely competent. Just in time for us to have to change the intro for whatever we do after this. <laughs> It's uh, we, it's a monumental. It's episode sixty-five. Yep. Um, and it, it it's the final issue of Grant Morrison's run on JLA, and it's a shame that it didn't end on a on a more auspicious number. I want to say like sixty-five feels weirdly. I don't know. Like just, I mean, meh. it's it's better than. 41, which is the issue number of the actual comic we're reading. Yeah, that's weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's such an odd place for... I mean, I guess it sort of speaks to DC let Morrison tell their story, and it was just however many issues it took. Mm. I wonder if, um, we, you know, given that there are kind of like uh, filler issues with like guest writers and stuff, mm. I wonder actually thinking about it i wonder what morrison's original pitch even bloody looked like you know we've took well i mean i think we've seen elements of it and what morrison was kind of looking to achieve on a on a kind of thematic level but i wonder if there was a a loose um breakdown of how the arcs might work or whether it was more like hey dc uh i want to do i want to do um oh good grief what's the first story arc called uh new world order (laughs) and i've got american dreams Maybe Rock of Ages, and then we'll just work out the rest as we go along. I'm trying to work out how many fill-in issues there were. So there were the four Wade issues in Strength in Numbers. They were the first ones. I've got the spreadsheet open here, PJ. I could tell you And then exactly. I'm going to try and remember them all. And then you have Justice for All, where you have the Mark Miller, and then the two more Wades. Yep. So that's uh, seven so far. And then Ooh. I think it's just the J.M. DiMatteis one in yeah. this issue. Nicely done, PJ. Very so nice. Eight fill in issues. So 33 Morrison issues. That's also a weird number to end on. <laughs> but also, that's kind of buck wild, isn't it? Like, you think about this era, which 
maybe doesn't get the attention it deserves, but it, mm. because it, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that this kind of shaped what comics were for a while, like mainstream superhero comics. Yeah. And and it was only 33 issues. Yeah. That's kind of wild. Like, without the breaks, that would have been not even three years of comics. Yeah. yeah. And, and, of course, we, we added extra to that with looking at Secret Files and Origins and... Uh, uh, JLA Wildcats, of course. DC One Million. JLA Wildcats. Um, Midsummer's Nightmare, which Morrison wasn't involved in. Grifter's Mask. Um, Earth 2. Bit of Aztec. Bit of Aztec, yeah. yeah. Bit of Aztec. Yeah, of course, of course you, you've got... Yeah, sorry, DC One Million, of course, is, a, is, you know, a big chunk in that. But I guess that only really equates to five more... Morrison issues because you have yeah. four issues of one million and then JLA one million as well. Yeah, yeah. Of course, we also looked at whatever else was in that trade. Do you know that was a year ago? What when we did DC one million? Yeah, was it a year ago? Good. It was. It's come up on my uh, my memories on my was it Time Hop app on my phone <laughs> today that oh yesterday sorry that I think we were looking at um, a year ago. DC One Million issue two or three, I think. Yeah, or is is it like um, how far back does the time hop go? Is it like uh, twenty three years ago today? Uh, the JLA were battling Darkseid in an alternate future. <laughs> I mean, it goes back as far as we've been doing this show, at least. So I can look at what issue, uh, what episode we were doing like one or two years ago. Yeah, and I've got the uh, I've got the podcast page open beside me, and. Um... Yeah, so it's like around the time of my birthday last year, we were doing DC One Million Part Two. So I was like August twenty twenty one. We spent a long time on DC One Million, <laughs> possibly too long. Well, you know, they do say like with the general lockdown and the effects of the pandemic, you know, everybody lost a couple of years. I think on top of that, we, you and I, lost two years just doing DC One Million. It feels like <laughs> yeah. the longest interlude ever. I mean, imagine if we had covered the entire event every issue we'd still be doing it now well i what's going to be weird is and kind of exciting is going to be picking up all the kind of um, morrison ephemera that came out around this time the morrison mop-up which we've talked about and there are as i understand it two additional dc one million stories that morrison wrote oh no I think now I, I could be lying. I need to do my research, but I want to say that Morrison wrote uh, an atom one million story. Oh, that mm, you know that could be quite interesting. I know That's what's annoying, but is it? But isn't this week? Because again, as we've said a hundred and one times now, we we are we experienced this via the trade paperbacks over in the UK. And we've read and reread and reread this so many times. It's like a kind of canon in our head. So the idea that like there's like another story out there which just wasn't included in the trade, it's kind of exciting. Yeah, yeah. We're uh, so we're doing this episode where we will cover the final issue of of Morrison's main run on JLA. We're going to have to have another off air conversation about how we tackle everything else that sort of because i think the plan is we're going to try and look at all of morrison's jla stuff and then all the other jla stuff that was 
by different people, but was published concurrently yeah. with the Morrison run, just to see, I think, how Morrison's run informs it all and how other people use that team, etc. So it's, it's going to be an interesting... It's going to be a while, I think. There's quite a lot of stuff to look at. Yeah, because we've... You know, we've joked about it, but there's a serious there's a serious question to be asked about where does the show go after this? And um, we've we've floated a lot of ideas, and I think our listeners have been privy to them, but we're not quite at that stage. Like we're, whatever whatever it becomes, we there's still a, the epilogue, <laughs> the um, the end. We're we're basically at the end of the Return of the King, <laughs> and now we've got the kind of harrowing of the Shire, and then all the appendices about who married who. So, Possibly even the Silmarillion. Yeah, well, indeed. I mean, and this could take an additional two hundred pages of Tolkien-esque kind of lists and stuff. So, but we're going to do it for you. We're going to do not it for all you. of that JLA stuff is good, but we're going to do it. I I can already think of a couple of gems I'm very much looking forward to discussing. Yep, uh, same. I think the uh, the next Secret Files and Origins, or the um, the reappearance of the Ultramarine Corps. I'm very much looking forward to because that I think is a little gem of a story. And I've never read it. The Ultramarine. Wait, they're mini series or the JLA classified? I sorry, yeah, it's it's sorry, not Secret Files and Origins. Classified is what I meant to say. Ah, yep, no, yeah, that is a good one actually. Yeah, yeah. sorry, I apologise. I read that one. Uh, I got that one recently actually, as part in preparation. I'm like, oh, this is good. This is Morrison having fun. I think I think something that is particularly close to my heart is I want to say that Alan Davis's Elseworld series Justice League of America The Nail was released during this time. Oh, and interesting. That, weirdly, that is the first Justice League book I ever bought. I bought an Elseworld story before I bought any other JLA stuff purely because I was just looking through graphic novels in Waterstones and the Alan Davis cover just grabbed me. I was like, this, what is this? Oh, this God. looks so weird and good and colourful. And who are these? I don't know who any of these characters are, but I want this. PJ, this is, that is uncannily similar to an encounter I had with JLA The Nail. Um, <laughs> was it potentially an Ottaker's bookshop? It might have been. Given the time frame, it, those, those could still have existed. Yeah, I... I remember vividly, before they um, started wrapping their graphic novels in cellophane, uh, I remember flicking through JLA The Nail, only having a passing understanding of what the DC Universe was, uh, and also not getting the premise of the book. Mm. So I just remember thinking, oh yeah, here's Superman at the end. I wasn't even like, uh, hey, isn't it weird that Superman isn't here? I was just like, oh yeah, there he is. I think I, when I first started collecting comics, I was very much a Marvel guy, and I was like, oh, I'm not really interested in DC. And then a friend of mine lent me DC versus Marvel. Oh god! I think yeah. as a ploy to try and get me into DC, and it sort of worked. I was like, oh, I'm quite interested in these characters now, and yeah, all right, I'll, I'll let me check some stuff out. So he lent me Nightfall, but then I was sort of looking for DC stuff to read myself, and yeah. The Nail is where I went. I read DC versus Marvel, then Nightfall, then The Nail. That is not how you should start with DC <laughs> Comics, but it, it's, it's how I did it. And yeah, I love The Nail. Um, and it really, that's, Alan Davis is one of my very favourite artists of all time in comics. And 
the nail is why. I just I absolutely love his work. It was a really weird era for accessing comics, particularly in the UK. It might have been different over in the US, but like I don't think I can stress enough how kind of weird and slightly illicit a lot of his trade paperbacks were because you could only get them in major bookshops and we only really had Otakas or later Waterstones. You know, we had the DC cartoons over in mm-hmm. the over in the UK, you know, uh Batman and Superman. Um but really uh X-Men, Spider-Man, the Hulk were kind of dominating in terms of cartoons. Um comic shops were kind of few and far between. Yeah. Uh you know, I, I just remember like how kind of exciting and weird and and weirdly almost like a little like unsettling like a lot of like DC graphic novels were. Uh, I remember going, you know, to to the kind of graphic novel spinner rack in Waterstone, in Otakas or whatever, flicking through stuff. I remember opening The Invisibles <laughs> at like an age where I really wasn't ready to understand what was going on in The Invisibles. Uh, I remember buying The Filth and feeling so dirty with that book that I couldn't read it for a while. Uh, now, now, now I'm. I'm weird and twisted and I'm fine with it. But, and I just remember like, you know, I remember picking up like Marvel versus DC and I'm like, A, I have no idea who Thor is because I've never seen him before. Especially not in that costume that he had at that point. I mean, what an era for Thor, like green armor, crop top kind of thing. And also like, who the hell is Green Lantern? Yeah. He looks amazing. Who is he? I, I was so taken away by, blown away by Green Lantern. It was just so cool. And here's the thing, in DC versus Marvel, it's Kyle, but that was the only yeah. DC thing I'd read at the time. So when I then read The Nail, and it's Hal Jordan, in my head, it's the same Green Lantern. And I, I didn't remember DC versus Marvel that well until I reread it years later. And I was like, oh, must yeah, Green Lantern. I saw him in DC versus Marvel. This is the same guy. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know, to be... Oh God, I, I do sound like an old man now, but it was like the idea that America seemed very far away. Mm. Uh, and that was where all the exciting things were happening. That was where, like, you know, <laughs> clearly people wore spandex and battled crime. Um, the internet wasn't quite what it was. So, I don't know, comics did just seem like a little... It was like a glimpse into another another kind of world, you know. Or, or it's like, you know, hey, I know Spider-Man. I love his cartoon. Oh, here's a weird kind of basement comic shop. I'm going to go in and pick up a Spider-Man comic. And then you pick it up and it's like... Who's the Scarlet Spider? Yeah. Oh, my God. Why do these people have so many claws and spikes? And, you know, now he's a robot ghost from the memory of a dead ninja. Like, what's... It's just like, yeah. what on earth is happening? I kind of loved it, but it was baffling. Yeah. Yeah. I think you and I, the era we grew up in, trying to get into comics in the 90s, it was, <laughs> it was it's a great time to do it because everything was so weird. Yeah. And... None of it made a lot of sense, but it was so bizarre. And you did have some really good writers and artists in there. And, and some of that art was absolutely stunning that it just sort of hooked you. It would get its claws in you because it would be like, this is weird, but you love it. And I'd be, yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> and it was kind of like, particularly in the 90s, which is obviously much maligned and perhaps rightly so. But I have a soft spot for it because there was like a weird kind of like fever dream going on in comics where 
the fact that everything was so extreme, it it was an aesthetic. Maybe not an amazing one, but like, yeah, it definitely captured an emotion. I don't know what that emotion was, but everything was gnarly as fuck. You look at Rob Liefeld's comics from the time, or even today, and <laughs> that is not good art. Let's you know. No, I mean, it's really not a nice way of saying it, but yeah. No, and his his anatomy makes no sense. the The costumes look weird, and the way he draws a collar is just like a big square on a guy's neck. It makes it it's <laughs> it it looks stupid, but it is dynamic as heck. The dynamism of Rob Liefeld's art, I think, is what really sold him to people and what made them go, yeah, I like this. Mm. And I can't argue with that because, my God, it's dynamic as hell. <laughs> it was for weird... It was for weird era of going, like, we're post-Watchmen. We're post-The um, Dark Knight. Oh, is it The Dark Knight Returns? I always forget what it's actually called. Dark Knight Returns. Yeah, yeah. The Dark Knight Returns, yeah. So we're post this era where, like... Comics have had that postmodern moment and they're suddenly kind of like art and gritty and self-referential. And, you know, we, every cliche we now think about serious comics. But then also you've got the 90s where everything looks like... I don't know what the hell it looks like. It's just big and colourful and very, very stupid. <laughs> but it's also yeah. trying to be literary. Yeah, I, mean, I remember like one of the, I think possibly the worst single comic I've ever seen. And I bought it because I had to, because I was just so, I was like, I have to own this. In a secondhand shop, I found an issue of Youngblood. <laughs> yeah. Not even like, it was like a later issue of Youngblood, written by Eric Stevenson, mm. of all people, who has gone on to write some very good stuff, like uh, uh, Nowhere Men. Is very good. Um, obviously now like editor in, was editor in chief of Image, might still be, I'm not sure. But good God, this was shit. Like shit on a gloriously tacky level. Like the artwork is bad. Uh, I'm sorry to say it. I can't remember who drew it. And the story is gone sang school, but also because comics are now art, <laughs> let's throw in like some Wordsworth quotes and stuff. It's like, hmm. oh, I'll just read like 22 pages of inconsequential weirdness. Yeah. And then, and now here's a literary quote to kind of close it out. It's just the most tonally misjudged thing. And I'm like, this is all print. This is incredible. <laughs> like, I have to own this. It's, it's a work of genius. Yeah. Yeah, that, that sounds like the 90s. Yeah. And again, like, that was a very cruel thing I just said. But also, like, Eric Stevenson has gone on to write some brilliant stuff. He clearly had it in him, you know, <laughs> uh, much more successful and accomplished than I am. So, you know, I can't take that away from him. I like the stuff he's done. But if you want something that's just indicative of what the hell was going on in comics at that time, like, it's bad. But I kind of love it at the same time. I, I love how unironic it is in mm -hmm. a weird way. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it, it's such a business. It was anything goes. That was it with the nineties, wasn't it? Yeah, and you want to joke about like you know, you joke about like say, oh, it was the eighties. Everyone was on cocaine or whatever. 
But with the 90s, I can't even say they were on drugs. I think they were just high on life. <laughs> Nobody yeah. told them they couldn't. No, they really didn't. They really didn't. And and you also weren't sort of, there was less of a, it wasn't a crossover every second that you had to tie into or yeah. they weren't as strict about the universe that you were in. Like, you know, we've seen with JLA, there's mentions of and and of No Man's Land. And if you show Gotham, it looks like a mess, but that's it. Yeah, I think if they did that today, they wouldn't even be allowed to have Batman in the JLA book. No, it's, I, I genuinely do favour this kind of softer approach to continuity where Same. there's definitely a shared universe, but it's not it's not just cameo, cameo, cameo. I, I, I mean, undoubtedly now, uh, a lot of these comics, well, maybe Marvel at least, but these comics are a lot more kind of focused on how do we transfer fans of a TV show? How do we get fans of the movies into the book? So there's a lot more, there may be a lot more welcoming to new readers, but then maybe I'm being cynical here, but it also feels a bit more like because of that, you can't really get any meaningful growth or development because you have to be, you have to adhere so closely to this more accessible, more understandable version of the characters. Yeah. 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 Comics, everybody. <laughs> I, I, yeah, the poison chalice, because who would want to be editor-in-chief of either Marvel or DC? Like, what a nightmare it would be try, trying to entertain while also going, we cannot advance in any way. We must mm. not advance in any way. Yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame. And I don't know. I, th I don't really know who comics are for anymore because I'm an old school reader and I've sort of dropped out of Marvel and DC these days, but are they courting the movie crowd? Are they caught? They, then they'll do weird continuity things that try and bring back the old readers, you know, or I don't really know. I just don't know exactly who they're for at the moment. I guess, you know, they'll say they're for anyone, but I guess it's cyclical. Kids who are reading them now are going to grow up and yeah. in their 20s and 30s sort of go, oh, these are my comics. My comics were the ones where, I don't know, Spider-Man was in the Avengers. and I guess I, this is where I do... I, I, I don't want to sound like a, a bit... like an old grumpy old sod going, oh, it's not like how I remember it. But it, it it's because the move... You know, it's like you get... A character could exist for 60, 70, heck, nearly 80 years. You know, God, how old Superman now? He's got to be pushing 100, really. Uh, 1939, oh, 38. Okay. Yeah, so he's definitely... Oh, he's had his 80th anniversary recently. Sure. So you have a character like Superman who's had 80 years of continuity. Sometimes that continuity has been scrapped, reimagined, re scandalone stories, Elseworlds, whatever. He's an icon. But then you only get to really make one movie. You get the sequels, obviously. You know, there's been so many Spider-Man movies now, it's getting ridiculous. But, like, hmm. really, the moment where you make that first movie and it kind of propels that character into the real world, you're taking the entire potted history of that character and you're distilling it down 
into one kind of archetypal version of that character. You know, we're not doing a clone saga. We're not doing all this kind of stuff. We're boiling it down to basic principles. This is this is Spider-Man, and he's on the screen. This is Superman, and he's on the screen. And then, of course, you get sequels of crossovers and whatever. But now we're at a point where it's like the com- the movies now have basically kind of essentially pillaged every major event that's kind of ever happened in comics now. There's almost nothing left to reference. Uh, you know, heck, we're, we're getting um, Secret Invasion, um, some variation on the Forever War. Who knows? Um, yeah, Armor Wars, that's coming. The Armor Wars. Like, there's nothing left to kind of reference. And I'm like, well, and if the comics only existed to fuel these movies, it's like, it's like you've done it. it uh, well, I'm, I'm describing this really badly, but it's like we're being judged in the heavenly corks. And it's like you've summed up the entire history of this character and you've distilled it down into one archetypal thing. Great. This is where you put it in the filing cabinet and you shut it away. There is nothing left to do with Spider-Man. There's nothing left to do with these characters. It feels that by processing all this comics history and turning it into the the movies, the, the TV shows, which are wonderful, which have, of course, attracted so many new people, it's like you've just drawn a line under that character. I think that's really only since the MCU debuted. And yeah. by the way, Marvel... Kevin Feige, if you had any balls, you'd be adapting The Crossing. <laughs> but yeah, they do, they do tend to look at the big stories and, and adapt those and everything. But I think if you look at the first Superman movies with Chris Reeve, which, you know, those first two, I love. Mm. I absolutely love those. They were very, they were just another adaptation. You'd already had Superman in the radio serials in the 40s and the Fleischer cartoons, which I also well, the first series, anyway, I absolutely love. Second series became a bit more World War II propagandary, but, you know, whatever. Yeah. And you then had the Super Friends in the 80s you, as well, but Tim Burton's Batman movies in 89 and 92. These were just versions of the characters. They didn't yes. straight-up adapt set stories. They just took the character, did their own thing with it on the screen, but kept the, um, you know, the, the heart of the character correct like it was that was definitely superman that was definitely batman that's great i think it's only and then the comics continued in their own way so that's true that's true yeah have things like crisis and and the changes to batman's costume here and there and the death of superman electric superman nightfall all those things which now have been referenced in movies and it's really i think then when you get to the mcu maybe to a lesser degree, the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy, because that did have very specific touch points from the comics here and there. Um, And now since then, they've sort of been adapting the comics, and in return, the comics are sort of beholden to to them, in a way. It's it's weird. That's the weird thing. Uh, And I I, I think that's the thing I, I find kind of odd. And like, you know, you got like an early thing where, you know, Tony Stark having an arc reactor in his chest... You know, obviously not something that was ever in the comics, but it was a nice element from the movie. So suddenly that's reflected in the comics. You know, the Guardians of the Galaxy essentially made out of whole cloth, you know, uh, for the movie. Um, and now, of course, the comics are a reflection of the movie, which is very it's very popular. I, I'm not doing a very good job of describing it, but it's almost like it's almost like the game is over. 
Yeah. And, and now, now that we have an archetypal version of these characters, which is so recognizable, is such a brand that has to be instantly recreatable and uh, can't deviate from what we know. It's almost like the comics are now kind of fixed in a way. And it, it seems to be almost more important to know and recognize the character than it is to actively kind of enjoy the stories or kind of develop with them. It's, yeah. almost, like, it's almost like the Marvel cameo, the Marvel kind of post credit scene has, has become like their greatest gift and their greatest curse now. Yeah. It's like a end of, sorry, spoilers everyone, end of the, the new Doctor Strange movie. You know, of course the movie ends, you sit through the credits, credits roll, bang, here's another character. Mm-hmm a named character from Doctor Strange history. And then it's just like... Played by a big name actor. Yeah, which is, you know, it's clearly just is is a good gig now for any Hollywood actor. But then you're just like, okay, I guess we're on to the next thing now. That's another thing which has been kind of digested and presented to the world. And then, of course, you'll look at Marvel and now that character is back in the forefront because you've got to do a year or two of heavy promotion in the comics to get the readers ready for the next movie. I mean, it's made them very successful. It's made comics bigger than ever, but it's. Um, I do wonder if they're kind of a bit shackled now to the system, and yeah. I wonder what the comics are if, if not just a medium for pushing people into the movies. Yeah, and you know, they're still selling. They've still got their fans, so fair enough. But for me, I, I, I think I've just, I've checked out, and I don't know if I'll check in again. Yeah, and that's kind of, that's kind of, I don't know, is that sad? It's maybe a little sad, or maybe it's okay. It's okay and sad at the same time. I think time. it's okay. You know, it's life, isn't it? You change, you grow. The things you love, if they are carrying on trying to tell the same story for 60 years, yeah. you're going to go, oh, no, okay, no, I'm checking out of that a bit. And it is what it is, I guess. And, you know, we've still got the greats of the past to revisit. It's true. It's just, yeah, it was interesting when... To read these stories from an era where generally it was considered that comics were kind of dying on their ass, you know, where they're like, oh, you're limping along, but Marvel's kind of bank nearly bankrupt or was bankrupt in the, you know, dwindling numbers. What, what, it was almost like because, because they had nothing to prove, it felt like the comics were a bit more adventurous mm. or maybe a bit more like, well, you know, why the hell not? You know, comics are their own world. We don't have to... Maybe they're struggling because they're not bringing new, broader audiences in. But also, because they're not, they're just kind of doing comic-y stuff. Yeah. Now, you know, Electric Blue Superman, that's a very comic-y kind of thing to do. For better or for worse. I mean, we love it because it's the best. It's the best thing in the world. It's the best thing comics have ever done. Yeah. But it's like, it's not a very commercial move if you were trying to adapt it to cinema. And now it seems like every decision is now based on how can we affect the movies, influence the movies. Whereas before it was like, I want Spider-Man to be cloned. You know, this would make an awful movie. But let's do a 14-part <laughs> maxi-series about it. Um <laughs> With mixed results. So, you know, they did it, for better or for worse. Yep. Yes, they did. 
Uh, I tried rereading some of the Clone Saga recently, and it was... There is some good stuff in there, but my God, it's a mixed bag. And it just goes on way too long. I think I remember reading one issue, which I think in hindsight may have been a deliberate attempt by whoever the creative team were to actually weave a coherent narrative out of the Clone Saga. Hmm. It was like a kind of... Maybe you've seen this one. It was, I think it was basically like Norman Osborn quietly kind of just reminiscing to himself and basically revealing about how he masterminded everything. Oh, yeah. I want to say it was like a one-shot called uh, like Spider-Man The Osborn Diaries or something. Yeah, yeah. I should try and dig that out. I wonder where the hell that is. It was kind of... Um, I remember enjoying it. I thought the artwork, artwork was very good. But yeah, it was, it was just weird. Yeah. But hey, we got yeah. Scarlet. We got Scarlet Spider. You know, we, we did, and who they keep bringing back? Is he still around? I don't know. His costume got an awful, around for He's a got bit, like an awful he? costume now. Yeah. Hey, yeah. is PJ? Question of the day: Is Scarlet Spider the electric blue Superman of Marvel? No, I'm going to say no. Okay, because he wasn't Peter Parker. You know, it wasn't, and I think when they made Ben Riley Spider-Man, I, I'm not going to say nobody, but I, it wasn't long before they brought, you know, that was supposed to be a permanent thing, and then the the blowback from it was, oh, um, no, we better put Peter back. And I don't think the Ben Riley Spider-Man costume is PJ, as good PJ. as the original. No, I'm saying PJ, it. you're going to say as good you, as the original. You're going to say something here, and I think our friendship's going to come to an end. It's not as good as the classic. That's why it's not Electric Blue Superman, <laughs> and nobody had that moment with with him, with Ben Riley as Spider Man in that costume, that you can the equivalent to what Morrison and Porter did with Electric Blue Superman in one issue of JLA, and have two of the most iconic moments for the character of that- all time. That, sir, is unfair, <laughs> because not everyone gets Grant Morrison and Howard Porter. That's not my fault. Just flexing <laughs> that hard. They had Mike Waringo, who was a titan of comics art, and he did a lot of the Ben Riley stuff. The Ben Riley costume looks amazing. I'm not going to talk about better or worse than other costumes. It's a great costume. I'm not going to hear a bad word said about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're gonna nineties-ify, if you're gonna if you're gonna bring something into the nineties, you could do a lot worse than giving them a Spider-Man, a Ben Riley Spider-Man costume. <laughs> and if nothing else, we did get uh, Spider Girl out of it, which I loved. I think that's, that's true. a brilliant comic. And is she was, doing? I anything? was sad when it got cancelled. I was going to say, is she doing anything now in the kind of greater Spider-Versal? They Chronicles. reintroduced her in the Spider-Verse crossovers, but it was never never not, the same. It not just, quite the same. The original run, the I, I, it was Dimitteus again, wasn't it, Spider-Girl? His run on Spider-Girl right up to the end, I would say is probably his magnum opus. I think that's oh, probably wow. the best thing he's ever done for my money, and I loved it. It was great. Quite a claim. And PJ, on the record, saying big fan of that costume. So on Spider Girl, you we all heard it. I'm a big fan of that costume as Spider Girl's costume. 
Impact I think on Spider-Man, web- I prefer the original. Impact webbing, PJ. Impact webbing. I do love impact webbing. Remember that? To be fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, we'll whittle him down, listeners. <laughs> he's going he's gonna to cave. But um, the impact webbing should be coming out of the Scarlet Spider costume. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, yeah, he can multitask. Um <laughs> We apologies, everyone. Like you weren't even privy to the pre-show conversation that PJ and I had. We had a long conversation before even turning the mics on, and now we've just had another long conversation. I feel kind of guilty about that. I feel like I, I think I think. Do you know what? I genuinely think there might be an element of us trying to prolong the end. Yeah, maybe we're in denial here. It's gonna, it's going to be a long issue though. That's the thing. Like it's a, it's a bumper. Have you ever watched the um, the extras on the extended cuts of the Lord of the Rings films? Because when you get to the last one, they do show Peter Jackson directing the very last shot he ever did for those films. Oh. And he keeps on, even though they've got it, he keeps on asking for another one because he's just not ready for it to end. Oh. That's where we are. We've got Ian McKellen kind of, you know, standing here beside us, kind of... <laughs> Waiting for direction. <laughs> Playing the role of Zauriel. Uh, PJ. Mm. So it's come to this, the very mm. last issue of uh, Morrison, Porter, et al.'s uh, run on JLA. It is issue 41 and the concluding part six of World War Three. Where, yeah. we, where do we stand? What's, what's going on? Oh, my God. Okay, well, we don't have to worry about the Injustice Gang. That's been dealt with. That's fine. The Mageddon Warhead has arrived on Earth, and everything has gone to heck. Uh, Wars are breaking out everywhere. The superheroes of the world are doing their best to stop it. But, you know, it's a big old losing battle while this giant octopus thing hovers in space above the Earth. And it's got Superman held prisoner within it. Uh, But... The Flash has just turned up with reinforcements. A big silver dude. Yeah, uh, who just. We've only seen one image, but. Wow. Just. Just, yeah, looks incredible. So, we're talking like 11th hour kind of uh, doomsday clock. Um, Arguably, things have never looked this bad for the JLA. Yeah. Arguably. Uh,. And um, I'd say I'd say who died, PJ? Who died? Uh, Zariel. Oh yeah, he got blown up when the watchtower exploded because yeah. that happened. Uh, but um, you know what, PJ? He's gone, but not forgotten. Uh, because we we open this issue, the final issue, on uh, Zariel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who you may have forgotten about? I mean, we kind of forgot about the Flash for a while. Hmm. But um. Yeah, Zariel, uh, kind of, I guess, in the moments before he died, uh, walking through the flaming watchtower uh, to his death. He knows he's going to die, but he's kind of narrating this. So I guess he's not entirely dead. Well, he's he talks about, you know, heat too fast for flesh to bear and his body was charred to white ash in a second. So he did a proper die. He did a proper die. He, he ain't but, coming back, folks. But he says to us, I am heaven's representative on earth. I died to come here to plead humanity's case before the courts of light. So he died on purpose so he could return to the afterlife or to heaven or to wherever and say, hey, can we help save the world, please? And you, you get this lovely kind of shot where, like, we as we transition from 
uh, I guess Zauriel in the moments for his his death, uh, just this kind of solid white panel, which one has to assume is like the nuke going off at point blank range, and then just kind of Zauriel kind of like facing facing the reader, facing the camera against this kind of like bleached white background where it kind of looks overexposed, like the white's kind of like eating into his silhouette. It it just looks incredible. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. But he's not quite got the welcome he wanted because instead of saving the world, the uh, the almighty hosts of the Pax Day are just building a new one. Yeah, and, and we turn the page and just get um, uh, a stunning double-page spread of Zariel in, in heaven or the Silver City uh, kind of just standing in front of a bunch of angels who are, as you said, just are looking through the blueprints for a new universe. Yeah, and this is also where we get the title and credits. World War Three, Part 6, Mageddon, the first part of this story to have a subtitle. And it's uh, Grant Morrison, writer, Howard Porter, penciler, Drew Garachi, inker, Ken Lopez, letterer, Pat Garrahy, colorist, heroic age separator, Tony Bedard, associate editor, and Dan Raspler, editor. Um, yeah, so this is, this is, it's like a, it's a very, uh, Kirby-esque kind of heaven. Yeah, yeah it um, is. It's got this weird kind of edge of, like, super advanced tech versus just weirdness as well. Yeah, yeah, like weird crystalline structures and then a big cube with giant angel faces on it in the background and... Yeah, and, it's it's so cool, but a really unexpected way to start the issue. Yeah, and PJ, having read this thing multiple, multiple times, and I I don't know if I've ever noticed this before, and I could be dreaming it, but on the giant cube in the background, is one of those faces meant to be Asmodel? I think it's just meant to be an angel of the bull host. Sure, yeah. And then, because then on the other one next to it, it's sort of like a more... Zauriel type angel face so I think this cube just shows maybe like the different orders uh, yeah yeah the um it's weird isn't it because I I as far as I'm aware please correct me if I'm wrong Peter you might know better because you've read some 90s DC events mm. uh in the context of the DC universe hell is very much a real place yeah um have have how often have, have they addressed the concept of heaven being a real place in the DC uh, universe? Before Zauriel, I don't think they really had. And also, this it's arguable whether this is heaven in the truly kind of religious sense, where, you know, this is where you go when you die, or whatever, you know, uh, eternal bliss, versus... Is this just where the angels live? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I don't think that's a question they ever really answer. No, and and I don't know how the general kind of power hierarchy is meant to work in the DC universe, because there is, as we said before, the, the DC universe is almost, as opposed to the Marvel universe, is, it seems a bit more kind of, um, almost like dualistic, like a bit more kind of fundamental in its kind of like um, architecture. Mm. Like there is the presence, there is a being which is, if not God, very close to being God. Uh, you know, the spectre is a big player in it. Yeah. 
So I guess my question would be to you, PJ. If this is the Silver City, where the angels live, which almost has a bit of a Sandman crossover to it, mm. uh, how does the hierarchy of an angel sit against the hierarchy of uh, a weapon from the old gods that came before this world? That's a big question, and I don't have an answer. Because <laughs> clearly, clearly these dudes are not worried about being wiped out by the Mageddon warhead. Yeah, so they're clearly outside the universe as we know it. Yeah, I think so. I think it another dimension. That's usually what the the answer is for hell as well, isn't it? So, yeah. Okay, well, thanks again. It's um, I think thinking about it in multiversity. Uh, some years later, when Morrison worked on the map of the multiverse, I can't say with certainty. I I might have to go check the map, but. I think Heaven or the Shining City is one of the realms they put in as kind okay. of existing outside the multiverse, but I can't... I'm trying to think. It might still be inside the Source Wall. Although right. it might it might not be. I'm not sure. It's a fun map. <laughs> oh, but we, we're going to leave Heaven straight away, right back to the action. <laughs> um, and we get sort of the signature of this this issue here. Where it starts with a panel of Mageddon just glaring at Earth, which is smaller than Mageddon, while Oracle's talking <laughs> on digital telepathy to basically all the superheroes who are helping out. And then through the following panels, just Mageddon's baleful red eyes are just in the sky, in the background, throughout this issue. You just have that there. And you have to assume that this is this is occurring... I'm going to give this a pass in terms of like hard physics, because I'm going to assume that the Mageddon warhead is equal parts conceptual yep. versus like physical because you say to yourself oh how could a how could a thing that big be next to earth and not tear it apart it's gravity it's like it's a weapon from Erda, like the old universe or whatever it's called like you don't know how it works it's cosmic with a capital c yeah yeah and oracle's basically saying you know this thing's affecting the whole world we just have to keep resisting it the jla and everyone else. And we do see a, a plane on fire as two superhumans fight on top of it, one of whom I think is Warmaker 1. Yes, PJ, yes. Because then 4D is also just underneath it. And then the next panel is, is a big panel of Pulse 8 trying to clear people from what I think is Big Ben being shattered while Captain Marvel's catching missiles out of the sky above him. I think that is, that, I think that is Big Ben being broken. Yeah, and I, I love hearing you say Pulse 8 because I am reminded of a fact that it took me 23 years to work out that that is a pun. Yep, same. <laughs> I'd never said his name out loud, so no, it didn't I, occur to me. I, know, I didn't have anyone in my life that I could say the words Pulse 8 to. No one would have cared, PJ. <laughs> but yeah, Oracle is on digital telepathy thanks to the mother box merging with her systems in her watchtower. And she's just trying desperately to coordinate responses to a global ca catastrophic war event. Uh, so just a just a normal day on the job for the JLA. Um, so we cut to the JLA embassy, you know, down on ground level, and uh, the some of the assembled superheroes are kind of standing around while the Flash introduces us to the Glimmer, who I guess we get our first proper look at here, as opposed to the kind of epic. Uh, slightly confusing appearance at the end of the last issue. Um, the Glimmer is is big. 
uh, I'm not good at judging size, but maybe like 60 foot tall or something, like 10 times the height of a regular human, uh, is wearing a kind of natty black Wongzi with short shorts and uh, is has silver chrome skin. It's this kind of crackling blue energy. Yes. A- and uh, the Flash is like, um, yeah, this is the glimmer, the last survivor of Wonderworld. And um, yeah, we, we ran from the edge of time and space to be here. So we've been, um, yeah, we've been chatting for what feels like months already. And if, if long-time readers would remember that the Glimmer got mentioned in Rock of Ages because it was the Glimmer's Wonder Wheel that Flash, Green Lantern and Aquaman used to get back to Earth. So Morrison was seeding this a while ago. Ah, so cool. So cool. And I think um, the... I I don't think we ever got the character's name, but the blacksmith of um, Wonderworld talking about how, like, uh, the Glimmer had disappeared into the hyper now or something Mm. like that, and he hoped he'd return one day. And I guess we find out where he ran. Yeah, yeah. Because what what the Flash says to Guy Gardner next is, you know, he faced Mageddon on the rim of the universe and ran through time to find the one place where anybody in history ever made a stand against this thing. And Guy's just like, here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and this is where, you know, we get proper kind of weird-ass space-timey on this because Wonderworld is such an amazing concept. Is at the limit of all things. It's at the limit of time and the limit of space. Yeah. So you could argue to yourself, does that mean it's the extreme future from our perspective or the extreme past because it's sideways in time? What does it even mean? It doesn't really matter. And if you could run at the speeds that the Flash and the Glimmer could run at, you'd probably be able to make sense of it. They ran perpendicular to time to be here. <laughs> and um, another good thing about the uh, Glimmer is that he's a big fan of kind of short, snappy statements. So in a big, booming voice, uh, it just goes like, I run, Wonderworld died in flames. That shall not happen here. Prepare the armies of man. He probably says it with a bit more gravitas than that, but uh, <laughs> it's a hell of a motivational statement. Yeah. And prepare the armies of man, the fortification of Earth. These are these are things that characters have said a lot through the Morrison run as well. I mean, God, even even no man was talking yeah. about like raising like an army of man. I want to say, yeah. So this is all prophecy. Like it's all it's all been happening. It's all everything is mythology at this point. Yeah, uh, and it's kind of wasted on Guy Gardner. <laughs> yeah, he just asks what he's talking about, and Flash just says, well, he's telling us we have a chance, you need to listen. And in the background, we have cameos from Hitman, Hippolyta, Golden Age Flash, and I think Our Man, but yes. with his hood up, so it's hard to tell. Yeah, and I always thought it gave the impression that this lot were just kind of sit, like chilling here, when I'm like, guys, I don't know if this is a tea break or something, but like, um, you know, the world is ending, if you want to get back to work. Why is Hitman there? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, he's enjoying a cigarette. He's just chilling. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, so, you know, Flash looks like he's getting ready to run. So I'm sure he's going somewhere important. So uh, we we transition to uh, Batman throwing open, throwing open the doors uh, to uh, the meeting room where he previously left Jean, who was, I yeah. believe, trying to make psychic contact with the Mageddon Warhead. Yeah, so we can see in on the right-hand side of the page, John is just sort of sat at the table with his head in his hands while Gypsy brings him a glass of water. 
uh, Booster Gold's here too, so is Blue Beetle, and Nightwing. And I, I always love seeing Nightwing, and he just says, look, I, I had them call you Batman, we heard you on screaming, and something's gone wrong. Uh yeah, sorry, PJ. I know you were listing the characters there. I may have blanked out for a second, but we've got Nightwing, Blue Beetle, Gypsy, and Booster Gold. Who's the the other person? I don't know. I don't know who that is. Mm. Oh, they well. look familiar. I think they've got a cape, but I don't know if this is maybe just like a random thing Porter's drawn, or no, I'm not sure. It's not like a version of Argent, is it? Or might be. Oh, I'm I'm I'm, gra- I'm grasping at straws here. Um, but yeah, Batman. Batman doesn't care. Batman kicks everyone out and uh, goes to have a word in private with Jean, who looks pretty uh, pretty shaken up, really. Yeah, yeah. He says, "I'll apologise for my rudeness later." But Jean fills him in and says, "You know, Mageddon has captured Superman. He's a component of the machine, and he's." Mageddon is going to use Superman's strength to destroy us. And the, he, he then says possibly the scariest set of words you could imagine hearing if you lived in the DC universe. His mind, Superman is broken, all is lost. And it's it's telling that we don't even get a reaction shot from Batman or anything like that. We just get a matter-of-fact camera pulls back mid shot of batman going i don't believe that for a second let me talk to him you know doesn't even bat an eyelid we we forget batman is not an asshole for the sake of being an asshole he's not like he's not that guy we you know he he he, he yeah they're super friends for crying out loud like he <laughs> he trusts superman with his life i think um he respects him perhaps more than arguably anyone yeah yeah, also, sorry, I've just checked the DC wiki. According to that, that is Argent. Oh, really? Yep, that's what the DC wiki says. So well done, John. Good God, I, I never, never in the years I've been reading this book have I been able to name that character. <laughs> well, now we know. Now we know. And there's half the battle, PJ. <laughs> anyway, yes, Batman wants to talk to Superman psychically, and he realises it's a symbolic thing, But he sits down and pulls his mask off because he realises that what Superman needs isn't Batman, it's Bruce. And Jean, clearly still still kind of reeling from the trauma of what he experienced, um, we, we get a nice shot of him with almost black eyes, which is just, you know, very kind of unsettling. And he's got this haunted expression on his face. And he says... Uh, you know, you should expect to feel despair, you know, cosmic despair. Uh, telepathic content, contact with Superman is only possible through the Mageddon mind field that holds him in thrall. It broadcasts on the lowest psychic frequencies. Horror, shame, fear, anger. And uh, Bruce just puts a hand on his shoulder and goes, OK, OK, despair is fine. I can handle despair. And so can you. Yeah. Yeah, and then he's basically saying that Superman is all-powerful, but he'll be trying to make friends with it. (laughs) You know, I'm not afraid of the dark. (laughs) And then he just starts shouting, this is Bruce, talk to me, Clark. Yeah, and again, just dropping dropping the code names. 
and and, yeah. and and also just again with Morrison, just a fundamental understanding of what makes these characters work. Like, as I mean, it's a small thing, but even for ba- for Bruce to say, like, you know, look, I can handle despair, so can you. Mm. They've all lost things terribly. Jean has lost so much. Bruce, obviously, even even you know Superman, even Clark, and it's just that understanding of Batman, no saying without having to say in exact words why superman is important because superman is superman i am not superman i will never be superman i am not trying to be superman Mm. but what superman needs is the cynic behind him like he needs he needs the cynic to be his best friend and that's batman it's like superman shines a light on everything and batman's like yeah but actually you have to understand how bad people think, and I understand that. Yeah. Oh, it's just... Oh, my God, it's so good. It is. It is. And talking of things that are so good, over the page... <laughs> oh, I love this page. I love this page so much. We we start with a small panel at the top of the page of the embassy with Mageddon's giant red eyes floating behind it, red lightning crashing down, super people just sort of hovering around. <laughs> <laughs> and then... We cut from there to the storage room where Kyle Rayner is kneeling at the ground on the ground, just holding his holding his hand in front of him and staring at the ring. It's a battle of wills between a primordial annihilator from outside of space and time and an artist from Brooklyn. <laughs> um Yeah, and and it's like we we never know we never find out what Prometheus did to the ring. Mm. you know to break it so you could say to yourself oh maybe he just like opened up the the <laughs> opened up the uh the dashboard and hit it with a hammer or something like that but it doesn't matter it, it it's willpower you know i don't know maybe maybe Prometheus just i don't know threw a load of jam into the inner workings it does not matter this is this is about willpower and for god's sake he's he's green lantern he is the green lantern one of a kind yeah and uh so Kyle is just like kind of staring at this ring, like sweating, kind of clutching his wrists, like fighting this thing. And yeah, if Kyle had an arc, this is this is kind of a conclusion of it in this series, like the heart and soul of the series and the heart and soul of the entire run. He's like, yeah, he's like, going, OK, so what? Like, you know, did I never think I was good enough? Did did, did I really think I'd never measure up to the, the others? You're like. So what? Like, get real. You know, it's time to time to quit whining and whip some primordial butt, as he says. Yeah, and then you get just this glorious, extreme close-up of his face as he's holding the ring in front of him, and it lights up. <laughs> and if ever there was a quote, which is so perfect, but also so of the era, you're throwing self-doubt at us? Mageddon, dude. You're up against the Jerry Springer generation. <laughs> but it's also just a quintessentially Green Lantern image, that ring shining with power in front of a smiling green masked face. It's it's a classic image and it suits Kyle to a T. I mean, we're really getting down to the point now where everything is becoming an archetype. You know, mm. we're, we're it's, it's literally the end of the world and everyone is reverting to their truest qualities. And you could say to yourself, like, oh, yeah, this is the Batman-Superman story, you know, because they're the big ones. And this isn't even... 
PJ, this isn't even the real Green Lantern. You know? It it is. Kyle is the Green Lantern. But it's like, oh, he's he's just some he's some shitty pretender to the throne. He's not he's not the man. What what part does he have to play? Mm. And it's like, oh no, no, you've missed the point. He's I don't know, I just feel like Kyle has earned his like literally earned his place here. Uh, more so than ever. Like he's he's just, you know, pardon the pun, shining so bright here. He is archetypal, yeah. he is the Green Lantern, and he has a massive part to play in this. Yeah. Hugely. Hugely. But we're not going to see that just yet, because now we cut to Easter Island, <laughs> where Wonder Woman, Steel, and Animal Man are flying down to the ground. Yeah. Animal, Animal Man suddenly, again, coming out of a left field to play a major part in, in the conclusion to this story. Yeah. And he's basically saying, explaining to Wonder Woman and Steel that he noticed lizards tearing each other apart in the Mojave Desert. And it, this means that Mageddon is, is stimulating the, the R-complex that humanity inherited from our reptile ancestors back in the day. And, you know, it's funny the things you take away, but I have forever carried with me the concept of the reptile brain yep. because of this comic. Yep. Yep. So Steel says, well, so if we can just interfere with the signal that's triggering that, we can win. Yeah, uh, and they've come to Easter Island, and they they're joined by Black Lightning and Blue Beetle. We get the the beetle the beetle ship uh, in the background. Beetle ship? Uh, the is it the bug? The bug? Yeah. Ah, the bug. I think it's the bug. Yeah, yeah. I think I might be wrong about that. And uh, you know, with Wonder Woman in charge, they're like, okay, so we we have to build a machine to save the day, and also, um, of course. She she brings up No Man. Yeah. Which of references course, Midsummer's Nightmare. Yeah, which I'd never obviously read uh, at the time of reading this. And uh, it was only through this podcast that so I eventually got around to reading it. But yeah, really just driving home the point in case you missed it that like seeds were sown a long time ago. Yes. And maybe not everybody <laughs> in editorial knew what the Warbringer or the, the big threat was going to be, but it ties together quite nicely. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. And she says they stopped him fulfilling his mission of transforming the entire human population into metahumans. Also tells us what no man was doing in Midsummer's Nightmare. But then she just says, right, I came to man's world to bring peace. Let's build the anti-war ray. Uh, so uh, we jump forward, maybe like a few seconds, a few minutes or whatever, to see the kind of work underway. And um, yeah, we have Wonder Woman carrying two massive purple light bulbs. Which yeah. are from the Purple Ray array, <laughs> which we continue to be a little in the dark about. But I, I do assume that this was incredible healing technology, which um, the JLA had access to at this point in time. Yeah, yeah, I think it was. But they're using it differently here, and we also get some. This is and this is pure Morrison. Some sort of science from Animal Man about you know this this planet is the morphic field contains future evolutionary potential. So if superhumans are a forerunner to the way everyone's going to be someday, we could possibly awaken that in everyone. And then Wonder Woman says, you mentioned something about monkeys. <laughs> this is great. Animal Man says, I don't know if this is true. I should have checked. But yeah, it's been found that if 100 monkeys learn something new, suddenly all monkeys of the same species display the new behavior. All this takes is enough energy to tune the human morphic field to a higher resonance. I would go out on a limb here and say that this is maybe quasi-science. Yeah. Uh, also, 
this is Morrison of the era of writing The Invisibles. So, you know, I think um, kind of like a lot of Fortean times, uh, kind of mad mag science is is really the order of the day. Yeah, probably. But hey, PJ, it might save the planet. So it, well, cl- it clearly works in the DC universe. Who's going to argue with that? But they need a lot of energy to tune in to the morphic field. And that's why Black Lightning is here. Yeah, um, again, I, not not unreasonably here because clearly they need an energy caster. But um, yeah, it's it's a bit just a bit of a random like, oh hello, I'm here. You know, <laughs> after not having really not even made a cameo appearance in the course of the series. Yeah, but it's it shows you know Morrison knows the DC characters. They know who they need to bring in for what they need to accomplish with the story. It's like, oh yeah, Black Lightning, perfect. Let's do it. PJ, I have um, an artistic question for you here. Mm-hmm. When it comes to comics, where do you stand on the colour of electricity? Do you go blue or yellow? I like the classic yellow. Mm. I think for me, that's because of Electro. Mm-hmm. I think um, was, he's the first character I encountered who had that skill set. And yeah, so that's just how it when when energy is blue for me it sort of says it's either actual lightning or something a bit more otherworldly mm-hmm. i have a lot of time for a blue energy crackle mm. and i also like the yellow of of an electric superhero or villain but i do kind of feel i don't know, i've always in the back of my head felt like it should probably be blue but yeah i i, I know and you know that's what they did to Electro in the Ultimate comics, wasn't it? Later on, and, and stuff. But yeah, I think um, I do like the idea of a character having a unique energy signature, though. Yes, like it maybe doesn't have to be uh, kind of uniformly representative of what all energy looks like. But yeah, I do like the idea that hey, look, nobody knows how Black Lightning's powers actually work on a chemical level, but it's like hey, his is his is yellow. Although I think in in the TV show his were blue because the Flash's energy was yellow and they had to they wanted to differentiate. Ah, yeah, and I, and I guess like the Flash has they've certainly leaned in more so in recent years on the idea that the Flash is kind of just crackling with energy. Yeah, and yeah. oh yeah, and that's maybe like just speed force energy. Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, um, we got we're cutting away again, PJ. Yeah, so we're just going to see some of the action happening on on Venice Beach where Zatanna is trying to protect Black Canary from approaching soldiers by turning their weapons into flamingos. <laughs> um, and I'm glad, and she says, oh, you know, it's the first uh, thing I thought of. But also, like, presumably flamingos is very hard to spell. <laughs> so more more kudos to her for being able to do that in a, in a, in a, in a flash. <laughs> yeah, it's a great little moment. And then we see Mary Marvel and the Ray trying to disarm fighter jets, just pulling the missiles out of them. And then the Ray takes a bullet to the leg. Yeah, and I obviously uh Porter having a, a big history with uh with the Ray. And uh Morrison, I think, clearly just really liking the character. And I've got to say, like uh, reading this for the first time, I was like, who the hell is this character? He looks amazing. Yeah, and I I also wonder how many of the cameo appearances in the background are scripted and how many are just put who you want in. Like, was this specifically in the script, the Ray and Mary Marvel are attacking this plane? Or was it the Ray, maybe put someone else in if you want? 
The Ray actually has a bit of a bit of a rough deal over the course of this series. I mean, <laughs> I think the Ray has a permanent rough deal, to be honest. The Ray gets, uh, let me see, gets. Uh, isn't it the Ray and Firestorm who attack the Justice Legion Alpha? Yeah. Okay, and also Ray gets mind controlled by Triumph. Yep. And here he is getting shot in the leg. Oh, gets punched by Batman. Yep. And gets shot in the leg by, a, I don't know, some kind of fighter jet. Yeah, which causes him to crash on the beach and he's just lying there while a bunch of soldiers point their guns at him and he just says, I'm one of the good guys. I can't die like this. <laughs> um, Thankfully, he won't have to because, hey, PJ, there's another member of the league who we forgot about. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's Aquaman. And uh, he's brought friends. Uh, and emerging from the ocean uh, is a great big Atlantean supercruiser. And uh, and a bunch of Atlantean soldiers who, I'm guessing through sheer loyalty to Aquaman, have been uh, persuaded to not give in to the Mageddon effect. Yeah. And there's then a whole load of flexing from Aquaman as he's... Like, I, uh, I'm sworn protectorate of over 15,000 submarine states. My territory surrounds every continent on the planet. I rule most of this planet's surface and almost all of its depths. So don't even think about picking a fight with the King of Atlantis. And then he just radios to Oracle and says, Venice Beach is secured. Uh, yeah, and uh, one can only assume that there are... He hasn't just come aboard at Venice Beach and there are a ton of Atlanteans doing, doing their business uh, around the world. So we cut yep. back to... Because, you know, don't get comfortable in any one scene because we've got to keep moving. Uh, we cut to the Shining City uh, where a uh, a lion-headed angel called Garganel is basically saying, look, Zariel, you know, it's kind of like, it's a bit awkward. You did your job. You did fine. We have a new job now, which is to build the new universe. So, you know, perhaps you could just kind of like step aside and let us get on with it. You like a lion-headed angel, don't you, John? I don't know what you're talking about, PJ. <laughs> um, don't know what you're talking about. It's fine. Uh, although um, I would uh, going ah no, I was going to say something stupid. When Asmodel turned up mm. back in the day, did it? Can you remember, PJ? Was Asmodel a stated to be a seraphim or a cherubim? I can't remember off the top of my head. Because I. In the angelic orders, of which I think there are nine, I think I think cherubs, cherubim, in in kind of weird Gnostic texts, are meant to be lion and beast-headed angels. They're not meant to be the kind of cute little chubby kid that okay. we we see on like kind of um, gift cards now. Uh, I think I think this might be a cherubim. Okay, well there we go. He would Lessons say. for all of us. Um, so basically, um, uh, Garganel is basically, basically going like, look, okay, God moves in mysterious ways. The presence moves in mysterious ways. Please shut up, Zariel. And, <laughs> and Zariel's point is like, well, look, like I, I'm a creature of the presence and I think this is a, I think this is buck wild. So clearly my opinion has to be part of the presence's plan. And I'm like, could, could we not go and help them please? The people in the material world. Yeah, but Garganel's just like, oh no, you've you've been immortal for too long. You know, you feel too much passion for them. Tell you what, we'll give you back your body and return you to Earth, and you can die there with your friends. 
Uh, and Zario's like, okay, well, I I will. You know, I'm going back. I can't leave them. And um, I hope that when you make a new universe, you'll be a little kinder to the creatures who live there. So, uh, you know, Zario starts doing the sad walk away. The uh, the sad music from the Incredible Hulk TV show starts playing. <laughs> uh, but then we get um, the Spartacus moment where uh, other angels start stepping forward. Going like, Zario, Zario, I will fight by your side. And then another one's like, no, me, I will fight by your side. And I, and I. And um, Zario kind of looks up and smiles. And suddenly, you've got a posse of angels heading back to Earth. Yeah, all dressed in like old school angel robes, big white flowing things. But they've then got the same helmet that Zario wears as part of his costume. So they all put those on. They're Team Zario now. Yeah, no, no one gets a costume as special or fancy as Zario. Nor should they. They don't deserve. They haven't <laughs> earned it yet. That's why they haven't earned it. They haven't gone through the rich character development of being a weird MTV angel hmm. and then disappearing for a little bit and coming back as a really just kind of nice, chill guy. <laughs> but we're going to cut from there, and we're in outer space with a couple more characters. Oh, <laughs> he's back, PJ. He's back. Here he is. We're with Aztec, who has apparently healed enough that he's flown into outer space to confront Mageddon directly. Now, talking about characters who, having first read this book, I had no idea who half these people were. But I saw the Ray, and I was like, he is cool as anything. And I remember my only introduction to Aztec was what I'd seen in this book. And he's not in it a lot. No. But I was like, good God, he's amazing. He just looks so cool. I was was totally on board with it. Yeah. Yeah, and he's he's approaching Mageddon and saying, my life was a sham, everything I was raised to believe was a lie, because much earlier in the series he found out he was funded by Lex Luthor. But then he says, oh, except this, the Shadow God is real. And he he's, tells us that he's been blinded by Mageddon, which we saw in a previous issue, but his helmet is relaying information directly into his brain. And he finds Orion just floating in space, wounded, having taken the fight to Mageddon alongside Superman a couple of issues ago. Yeah, and Mageddon clearly saw worth in assimilating Superman, but at the same time just kind of shattered Orion and left him to die. And yeah, and it's just it's just really cool and weird. And I don't really know what to say, but like um, uh, Aztec just kind of flies up to him in space and kind of touches his head and you just get this weird kind of cool like green shimmery kind of field coming off his hand and you know says the word heal and then without so much as a (laughs) backward glance just kind of flies off flies towards mageddon as behind him orion just shouts i live and i am my father's son monster of apocalypse orion the hunter harrier of worlds and gods mageddon beware (laughs) because orion doesn't learn his lessons and I don't think I have ever woken up and said anything as profound as that. Oh, God, no. I wish I woke up like that. I don't think my wife would enjoy it, but... <laughs> oh, my God. PJ, can you imagine starting every day? You would feel so affirmed if, yeah. you, if you started that every day. Yeah. be a great way to start the day. I um, I did not... I'm not familiar with the concept of a Curlian biofield. I've heard it a couple of times in comics. I think it's it's more of a bit more of like the fun pseudoscience. I think I read it in an authority issue. But I always read that 
as a kid and I a younger a younger man and I misread it and I thought it was a Kirbyan biofield. <laughs> and I always thought that was like a weird like um I don't know, little nod to Jack Kirby that apparently superheroes have a Kirbyan biofield. Mm. <laughs> I mean, let's let's say they do. Let, let's we say are putting that in canon. Yeah, I've got a bad case of Kirby crackle hmm. and uh, which is really kind of uh, causing me some gas. Uh but then we cut back to the JLA embassy where um there's still a degree of standing around and talking because you know like flash has been running perpendicular to time and he's just trying to work out what the hell's going on and he's basically saying yeah he's a little behind the curve he's like guys guys don't worry we've worked it out what we need right okay bear with me is a kind of transmitter so we can jam mageddon's signal eh eh (laughs) yeah but guy just cuts in and goes well look if you let someone else speak I'd be able to tell you that we've already got that. Wonder Woman and some of the others are on Easter Island right now and they just need some power. And then Glimmer shouts, I am power. <laughs> yes, thank you, Glimmer. Uh, <laughs> and then, oh God, like another moment which just, I, it's just stuck in my head ever since reading this. Um, and I've, I'm going to have to probably steal one day. Uh, mm. We've got Kyle. Kyle appears. Walking down a flight of steps, uh, ring kind of pulsing with energy. And Wally's like, Kyle. And uh, they just have this little quiet little conversation where Kyle's like, uh, hey, man, you know, better late than never. It's always the same with these things, isn't it? Like you you talk for five minutes on the stairs between epic battles. (laughs) Uh, This is it, huh? Yeah. and, And Wally just says to him, and I love this line. You bet. You look rough, Kyle, but I can't believe I'm saying this. You look like Green Lantern. And Kyle just raises the ring and goes, yeah, finally starting to feel like him too. Oh, man, chills. Actual chills. And to think how far far these two characters have come as well. Like, just the petty one-upmanship and then kind of the bickering and then kind of becoming bros and then yeah, just I don't know, just to, here they are. This, this, you know, Carl goes, this is it, her. It it really, it's like, oh my God, this really could just be the end of the world. Like, it feels that way. And it's just yeah. such a nice little human moment. Yeah. It, and, and there's not room for a lot of those in this final issue, but I love that Morrison and Porter got to have this between Wally and Kyle. They, they managed to put this small moment in there. I know, I know, because it, it, it's... It's the definition of an unnecessary moment. Mm. Like, you did not need this to drive the story forward. So, as you said, like, I'm just so glad that they found the time to make it happen. They found the page space to make it happen. Yeah. Because otherwise, it it wouldn't be worth as much. Like, yeah, it's... Like I said, we're seeing the end of end of a character arc here. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, but we, we cut from there <laughs> to Jean and Bruce... And Jean is trying to connect Bruce to Clark's mind, as Jean's saying, dark, empty, meaningless, oblivion. And then he connects them, and Bruce just instantly is hit with this wave of of emptiness. And he just shouts, God! And Jean has to steady him, and he says, I'm trying to shield you from full contact with the Mageddon program. And, and again, I like this as well, because it would be so tempting to just have Batman be the instant badass here. Like, to just yeah. be like, oh, oh, well, it's nothing, I'm Batman, you know? Mm-hmm. 
But it's like it's a cosmic warhead from a previous universe. Like he's bat he's Batman for, for God's sake. Like it would he needs some help here. Like he couldn't handle it alone. Yeah. Um But yeah, like you just kind of you 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 I guess this is Morrison's kind of thesis in a way. Like you just kind of realise that like this thing which drives people to like kill and hate and attack and at its once you get past the hate and the anger at its core it's it's cosmic despair you know it's it's absolute meaningless and and bruce is like yeah it's i haven't felt this way since since i saw my family dying in the gutter like it's 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 harrowing yeah and he asks where superman's mind is in all the noise and john just says you don't understand the noise is superman's mind which and makes Bruce go wide-eyed as he's sort of in contact and he quotes what he's hearing. All we've ever done is try to save Krypton or Mars, save our parents and loved ones over and over again, but we never will. We never did. And then we turn the page and we see Superman screaming in chains, uh, like so many chains, like like pointing in every direction, like fire behind him. And he's just kind of like, chanting almost like just kind of like drive vocalizing these terrible thoughts he's not himself and he's just like you know no matter how many we save we'll never make it right we'll always be too late to save the ones we most needed to save and then just this kind of mantra like ma get done and he goes better to die just die let it all die you know we can't defeat this can't win like again ma get done and then we get this insane panel Oh, it it's like this wonderful visualization of the thing that drives these three men as you have a giant skull-faced gunman in the background pointing a pistol towards us who fires two bullets from it, which then in turn fly through the air and shatter the worlds of Krypton and Mars, while a small figure who could be Bruce or could be Clark is, as a child, is kneeling in front of them, clutching his head. It's It's... It's an insane panel, but it's so good. And it's certainly not what you'd expect from the middle of this. I mean, admittedly, yeah, we're, we're facing down like cosmic apocalypse, but like it's a very metaphorical, very kind of like evocative panel for what is ostensibly big Kirby-esque, punchy, punchy kind of fun mm. times. But yeah, and again, just having the the, the nouse to realize that these three characters have all had have lost their entire worlds. You know, everything that mattered to them was was taken from them. And yeah, it's just to, to kind of be able to draw, to have a thread linking the three of them. Yeah, yeah. But Bruce doesn't have time for that. He just yells <laughs> into Clark's mind, shut up, Clark. We always win. <laughs> and on Superman's pained face, as he's chanting Mageddon over and over and over again, you just get this little, Bruce? <laughs> yeah. And then, then Orion turns up. <laughs> yeah, he's a subtle fellow. <laughs> just boom tubes into the middle of Mageddon, shouting, Dogs of Destruction, face Orion of New Genesis, master of the Astro Force, and just starts blasting. <laughs> like, like these little humanoids, which could be like, uh, I don't know, like the immune system of Mageddon. Just blowing the hell out of them, like just utter indiscriminate violence and destruction. 
Yeah, he shouts then, the fundamental forces of the cosmos are mine to manipulate and direct at will. In the name of the High Father, a new genesis, I defy this spawn of dead gods. And then these, like, techno-organic tendrils sort of reach up and grab him, and he's sh still shouting, Devils of Darkseid, the terrain itself is techno-active. <laughs> they have a it's, word for it, PJ. It's glorious, and it's so Kirby- and both Morrison and Porter here, the script and the art, 100% pure balls to the wall, Kirby. <laughs> and in the, just in the language of Kirby, to say that, like, it, this suggests that at more, on more than one occasion, on New Genesis, someone has had cause to say, oh, that, that's technoactive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then these, these weird red figures just have Orion trapped in a big... Like a weird Kirby block of red concrete, and Orion's just shouting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it, it, it's interesting that for all the um, for all the rage and fury that Orion comes in with, uh, the manner in which Mageddon is trying to dispose of him is utterly impersonal. Like, <laughs> yeah. uh, just like a machine, just like a a biological process. They've just encased him in a block, and they're gonna <laughs> they're gonna stick him between two massive spiked rollers. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's such a brilliant page because it's 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 pure Orion, it's pure Kirby. There's something really funny about it, and yeah, I love that page. I love it. It's also nice to see a character acting true to their nature. Yeah, and having a writer who understands that sometimes you just need to wind up your toy soldiers and let them go. Yeah, and yeah, of course, just having Orion just kick open the door, Big Berg style. And just start blowing shit up is is so perfect. Yeah. And <laughs> of course, you know, Superman is is wrestling with the Mageddon signal and he's like, hey, you know, what's the point? Like even Orion even Orion's getting a getting digested by this thing. You know, we can't win. We can't win. And yeah. uh Bruce is like I and Bruce is like, I don't care, Clark. I don't care if it can destroy every god in every heaven. It's never faced us before. Are you listening to me? He goes, is there, is there someone else there, Clark? And there is. Because Aztec turns up and says to Superman, it's only a machine. The gods made it. It's just like one of those clocks in Prague. It knows when to tick and when to talk. It carries out certain basic functions. And Superman tries to get Aztec to leave. He's saying, no, it'll Mageddon will make you part of itself. And Aztec just says, it won't have time, as he removes his helmet and says, I am in the heart of the shadow god of my people, Tetzcatlipoca, and he's just an old computer, just a machine. But we have a weapon designed to stop him. That weapon is called Aztec. And as he hits a button on his chest, he just says, tell them I did my duty. Oh, shivers, PJ. Yeah, because we know what this is. Again, We've seen this in Rock of Ages when the possible future version of Aztec detonated to take out, well, an entire factory on the moon, I think it was. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I don't know, I, I just in this moment getting like such a profound sense of sadness for Aztec because mm. the right character at the wrong time, like the world just didn't quite accept him as a character and, um, you know, his series ended prematurely and his appearances in JLA were quite kind of truncated, but he gets to go out with like a degree of dignity. And there's 
It's such a, I, I feel so sorry for him. He's like a character who's been kind of betrayed on so many levels as so many times. And even, even just for final discovery that this thing he spent his entire life fighting is just a, a sad old machine that somebody forgot to turn off. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it really hits hard. And then we, we, we get these two panels of like this huge ball of white energy exploding out of Aztec as he starts to vaporize, destroying the figures around him. Superman screaming his name, screaming Aztec. And then, oh my God, <laughs> this incredible panel, the rest of the page, of Mageddon glowing white. Looks like it's screaming in pain as the Aztec explosion hurts it. The first time we've seen anything other than kind of just cosmic disdain on its face. And um, if I haven't said it in a previous episode, I need to say it before we complete this run. Porter draws insane lightning. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, it's... I mean, I, the uh, kind of like the the composition of these panels, the the fact that Superman is screaming, but there's like an empty bubble at one point, yeah. like the 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 Dutch angle, the silhouettes, like it's incredible. It's, it's really incredible. Yeah, and then we just we just cut back to Earth, where where Bruce asks John what happened, and John says Aztec unleashed his four dimensional energy. He's gone. Aztec is dead, but he hurt it. And back in. Within Mageddon, Superman is still lying there in chains, fires burning and smoke smouldering in front of him, but the little red men are still running around. Yeah, and you almost get the sense that, like, there's a brief pause while, like, Mageddon kind of gathers its wits in a way, and then yep. these these little humanoids start kind of running towards Superman. And then uh, we get just a panel oh. of a figure... <laughs> Wreathed in green energy, flying at speed towards the outside of Mageddon. And, you know, we, we have Superman slumped in chains and he's like, and we, Bruce is shouting at him again, going like, fight it, Clark. You know, Aztec just died to buy you a moment. Don't let him die in vain. And Superman can't. He's like, you know, oh, you know, hopeless, can't think, crushing thoughts. Like he, he, he just can't even lift his, lift his arms, basically. And then Kyle arrives. Just, ah, this hero shot of Kyle looking more heroic than he's ever looked, I would possibly argue. His hand wreathed in green energy, accompanied by a squadron of green construct fighter jets. And he just says, Superman, sorry I took so long. Yeah, and you have to remember that, like, admittedly, Mageddon was working through agents, you know, and maybe Prometheus thought he was just acting under his own accord. But, like, Mageddon disabled Kyle's ring because it was scared of him. Yeah. You know, it's like the ring, clearly it was able to anticipate that the ring would have compromised its successful detonation. So here we have Kyle back at full power. Like, again, I think we've said before, but it just kind of, the understanding and recognition among people in this universe that, Kyle and Superman are like A plus plus tier. Yeah. Kyle may not realize it, but like the power at his disposal is incredible. Yeah. 
Yeah, and of course Orion is here too, so he starts shouting, <laughs> get me out of this box, Green Lantern, help me defend Superman against the mind hordes of Mageddon. And Kyle, who doesn't usually get Kirby dialogue, just goes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and again, you can tell things are like accelerating because we're just cutting, cut, 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 back between things. You can feel like this is like that kind of final act pacing. Mm. And yeah, we see Bruce kind of screaming. He's like, you know, I know it feels terrible, Clark. But we faced terror and loss before. We were forged in those fires. We didn't go under. We didn't fall. Don't you dare fail, fall now, Clark. And then all of a sudden, we're in an office in London where a man is saying, oh, just press this button, kill everyone, give the cockroaches a turn. I mean, could could well be Tony Blair. I think if we turn the page, that face looks like it is as... <laughs> An angel appears behind him and says, they're not ready for the responsibility, Mr. Prime Minister. Trust me. No more death. Look. And the angels have just descended on every country. You see angels flying down towards London, angels descending on Beijing. In Washington, Zauriel is with the president saying war is over. And there's there's angels everywhere. But not like it was... In that first story, Zaria was in where they were bad angels and things were awful. This is hope. And I think certainly like we, we will touch upon this, but certainly like the symbolism and the things as they as they mean to Morrison. It's like mm. I think I think um Zauriel saying war is over it means a little more than just surface level here. Like it's it is symbolism, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And God, it's good. And we then we're back on Venice Beach where angels have stopped the fighting there as well. And Aquaman just says, ceasefires coming in from every head of state. Angels are threatening your leaders with flaming swords and spears. I like Zauriel. The fish and fowl team. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh and and uh he's with Zatanna and she's like, Hey, I'm nominating you for the Nobel Peace Stroke Special Effects Prize, Aquaman. And then uh, she heals a broken wrist yeah. in, in reverse. Yeah. Um, we cut to Oracle, who's like, well, the, the wars have stopped, but according to the mother box, the Mageddon weapon is going hypernova in 30 minutes. Everyone's coming out onto the streets, though, like they know something's happening. But on Easter Island, Wonder Woman is worried because they, they don't have the power. Black Lightning <laughs> isn't powerful enough. And you get this moment of despair as black lightning is slumped smoke coming off his hands as he says god help me i'll try again wonder woman steel and blue beetle are all just staring at the ground as wonder woman quietly says we, we need to think of something else but that old man is looking up because above him arriving at super speed is the glimmer <laughs> yeah god he was just just looking spectacular um Beats for Flash there by a fraction of a second. Yeah, <laughs> and um, and you know, bless him, Wally. He's got many skills, but I think most of them is setting up a good one-liner. Uh, and he goes, um, "Last-minute rescues, my speciality. You need power." To which the glimmer responds, "I am power." <laughs> and, That's his catchphrase. That's like the third time he said that, isn't it? <laughs> and basically, just jams a finger down into the kind of purple ray array and just starts kind of supercharging it with energy. Yep. Yep. Which Wally describes as energy plus to Steel. And Steel just says, if I didn't trust everyone here, I'd say this is insane. 
we're making superhumans. And the glimmer shouts, for Wonderworld, for life, I summon the armies of man. As purple energy blasts out of all the Easter Island faces. <laughs> Which, you know, it didn't have to be Easter Island. I think it was picked just for this this yeah. image here, which is just a cool as hell image. And also, I mean, a little throw-in. I, I like that the glimmer says with lightning and with chemicals. Um, it's very, which is the Flash origin. I know it's the Flash <laughs> origin. It's it's very like uh, better living through chemistry sort of thing. Yeah. It's just yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why not get some chemicals involved? And then you get four panels of just. These, this purple energy hitting people all over the world. You get a, a family in front of their TV who are blasted out of the TV. Energy flying through Metropolis. People in the streets as purple energy crackles around them. This is this is a moment. And and then almost like a moment of quiet where we just see the kind of, um, you know, a shot of the city with buildings on fire and smoke. And Oracle chimes in on digital telepathy and goes, Hi, everyone. Don't be afraid. What we're feeling are new structures opening up in our brains. It's like a preview of evolution. All this amazing stuff you're seeing and feeling is what Superman feels like all the time. It's why he wants to save us. Yeah. And then we turn the page and we see Oracle. And she goes, so listen to me carefully. Mageddon will destroy us all unless we stand together. Our minds are linked. And uh, for for the time being... We all have serious superpowers. And she stands up. Yeah, that. Oh. <laughs> that is, oh, that's so good. That's so, so good. And again, it's, it's kind of like, I don't know if Morrison was like trialing ideas like here on the page that we'd later see in All-Star Superman, but the idea that because of Superman's senses, he has this kind of universal compassion like, because he's seen everything, because he can basically see, like, the forces kind of, like, uh, keeping the atoms moving. Yeah. How, how could you not have that revelation and not kind of love everything and want to yeah. save everything? And I guess this is, like, everyone's getting, like, a briefest glimpse of how Superman sees the world. But we cut back to Bruce and John, and, and Bruce is still Batman as he shatters a chair and looks terrified as he says, John, what have we done? Because... That's not a world Bruce can handle. Yeah, and it's definitely kind of... I've often wondered about this, like, because presumably Steel is having a very similar revelation because Steel has no powers. Like, mm. I often wondered, like, what it means to be a meta-human. But that's a question for another day because they've done something big and insane and audacious and it might just save the day. Yeah. And... Yeah, and so... We cut to up the upper atmosphere. And and I guess, PJ, even existing metahumans are not immune to this power boost because we have Wonder Woman. She goes, Oracle, I'm in orbit, breathing. Yeah. Yeah. And this is... Porter has drawn a strong Wonder Woman here. This is This is a representation of Wonder Woman as power and strength. And she says, look... I'm not sure about this, but I couldn't stop them. She's got Animal Man next to her and Steel on the other side and then some shadowy figures behind her. She says, you know, they said Superman had saved them more times than they can count. Everyone stay in formation. And Oracle says, who said Wonder Woman? And then we get, we turn the page and it's it's over two pages. Wonder Woman, 
a few angels, and just a whole bunch of people. Not even super people, just people flying through the air behind her <laughs> to go and rescue Superman. <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a great image of Wonder Woman here as well. Yeah, like, it's a brilliant. Porter just doing fantastic work. And, but yeah, this is it. This is literally the armies of man. Uh, we've made everyone Superman for a day. Yeah. And Wonder Woman says they wouldn't take no for an answer. As the armies of man descend on Mageddon and Wonder Woman cries out, Justice League Reserves, onward. And then we we go back into Mageddon and Bruce is still pleading with Clark. He says, last chance, and I can't believe I'm trying to convince you. Fight it, Clark. We can do this together. Reject Mageddon. And then we get a shot of Mageddon defending itself outside and blasting like a huge blast of energy fires from its mouth and and presumably kills a whole lot of superhumans. Oh my god, yeah. Um uh, and and then we have Kyle and uh, Kyle and Orion kind of fighting against like swarms hordes of these like little humanoids and Kyle's like uh wait, wow, did, did we have a recruitment drive while I was away? Uh is that Wonder Woman? And Orion's like, and the armies of man, foretold in prophecy, fight, boy, we must prevail. <laughs> and then we get a panel of of just some dude, yeah, <laughs> just vaporizing some of Mageddon's little men. As Bruce continues to plead with Clark and says, "This is humanity's last stand. Thousands are dying right now. Billions more will die in minutes. Save them, Superman, or God help me, I'll hound you through the afterlife until you beg for mercy." Which is such a Bruce line. <laughs> and, it, and also just for Batman, for Bruce to say, save them, Superman. Yes. Yeah, this is the moment when he calls him Superman instead of Clark. Reminds him who he is. Yeah, God, and just... He's not... Again, yeah, it's just, what, it's just like to understand what these characters do, to understand what they are, and, and Batman gets it, and Morrison gets it, and it's just like Superman saves people. Yeah. And then we get a close-up of Superman, now looking <laughs> somewhat determined as he just says, I really hate that lecturing tone, Bruce. <laughs> and then he just breaks free from his chains and says, but it's always when I need to hear it most. But also, again, just these great little moments, because you could always just portray Superman as a goody-goody. Mm. You know, it's like you... Even just in this moment, and you can tell that Bruce and Clark respect each other so much, but for Clark just to be a, just to be himself for once, to allow himself the human failing of just being annoyed, <laughs> to be yeah. just for a second, just being fed up with Bruce. It's like you smug bastard. All right, <laughs> I'm up. <laughs> I'm yeah. up. And then, yeah, as I said, he breaks free of the chains and just flies up into the air. And I, this is the moment where if this was a film, the John Williams Superman theme would be kicking in big time. <laughs> yeah. Um, God, yeah. So and, and Superman is all business right in that moment. He's like, okay, okay. So this odd little planetoid is the brain and that anti-sun up there is Mageddon's power source. The bad news is it's also a bomb. Yeah, and then John says, well, yeah, but it, it's going to vaporise half the galaxy if it detonates. And Superman says, it's okay, I don't think it will. We've got ten minutes, and I've got an idea. <laughs> Here we go. 
My mm. body is a living battery. Every cell is designed to hypermetabolize solar energy. I can absorb sunlight. Why not anti-sunlight? And he just flies into the middle of the anti-sun. And this is where a, uh, oh, I don't know, a, a scientist in the room might have gone, I don't think, I don't know what, what basis you have for this, but it's like, hey, we've got 10 minutes to save the world. It will work. Because he's <laughs> Superman, PJ. Superman can. Yeah. And then we get this great shot, like this long shot, you know, to kind of, it, kudos to um, Porter for even being able to depict these kind of weird cosmic architectures. But you see like Superman smashing through multiple layers of the anti-sun, like smashing through the outer kind of, I don't know, like corona effect, like through this kind of wall of plasma, then smashing into like a red core of the anti-sun and then arriving at the heart of it, which is just this kind of, black void and there's this this thing almost like a almost like a heart kind of made out of like wrought iron just kind of hanging there it's really weird yeah yeah and bruce does say this is the essence of mageddon you can't handle it alone and superman reminds him well i'm not alone i I have you and jean with me you're never alone in the jla and then he just grabs this heart it says here it comes, concentrated anti sunlight, and it's it's this negative energy starts to infect him, and he's sick with horror. And then Bruce and Jean lose him; they they can't find him anymore. As we see, like like literally, just like like blackness creeping up Superman's arms, and and this horrified expression on his face, and his his skin goes grey as these like black veins like kind of soak all over him, and. Yeah, and then we get this amazing panel, which is the image on the back of the trade. Yeah. Um, which is an image which has stuck with me for a very, very long time of... Likewise. Superman, a black silhouette with only his cape and S visible, holding the, like, this iron heart above his head against a black void of, like, green lightning and, and bubbles. And it's just so freaking weird you know and to say that superman is gone we've lost him and you just see him it literally in the heart of darkness it's it's insane yeah it's absolutely incredible and then we we cut to outside where kyle wonder woman and orion are still fighting the the drones and they're slowing down orion says they're faltering and then there's a detonation and orion panics have we failed at the last but wonder woman says no look at the light orion Superman. And we cut to <laughs> Superman. The heart is golden. The energy is golden. A fully revitalized Superman is just holding on to it. And he just says, Doomsday is cancelled until further notice. The Mageddon warhead has been disarmed. And we, we see um, Jean kind of like stumble, uh, whether through exhaustion or just a kind of like wash of psychic energy. And Batman goes, and Batman smiles and he goes, I knew you'd say that, Clark. Just wasn't sure when. And then we just get the Earth erupting into celebration. We're in a city. It's ruined. The Mageddon eyes are still in the sky, but everyone's celebrating. You've got Golden Age Flash and JJ Thunder there. As Oracle says, this is Oracle. Thanks to you all, there will be a tomorrow. 
So, uh, uh, one week later, um, the Watchtower is being reconstructed. Which is a weird one, because I think, uh, I think uh, doesn't Batman say to John uh, and Superman earlier that like you and John could basically build this, rebuild the tower in like eight minutes or something like that? Yeah, but you know, they deserve to have a rest yeah. after what they've just been through. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, um, it's the calm after the storm, and yeah, it's, uh, it's um, the, the League chatting with the uh, new gods, basically. And yeah, Metron's you've got here. Metron, Barder, and Orion. And when we say the League, it's at this point just the Magnificent Seven are here. And Superman says, "Look, thousands died. I wish we could have saved more, but." And Metron points out, "Billions across the galaxy have been saved. You, the future has been saved." And a little bit about when the Fourth World, the universe of the New Gods, is going to fade away. The gods of the Fifth World will arise from this planetary cradle. Very Kirby. What is Metron often said is that you you are only the forerunners. Yeah, I think it's been a bit of a recurring mantra: the idea that Earth is worthy of being preserved because it will give rise to greatness one day. Yeah, and also, Peter, here's a thing I've never really noticed before: uh, in the background of these panels, we see Flash chatting with the Glimmer. Yeah, Glimmer's just sort of hanging out. <laughs> I haven't and also, noticed that before either. But behind them. It's only in one panel. It's maybe like a blinking, you miss it kind of thing. But there's a big kind of red structure that looks kind of mechanical and might have like a little hole in it. Mm. Is that a random treasure of a watchtower or is that meant to be the anti-sun's heart? I was thinking the same. I think it might be Mageddon, the warhead. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, I do like the idea that the new gogs are, spoilers, obviously they're, they're leaving, but they're also kind of just taking some junk away with them. It's like, could you take the Mageddon warhead? And also, I guess, the Glimmer, because um, he's got nowhere to go, really. Yeah, and we do get a nice little, another little character moment between Aquaman and Orion, where Aquaman says, I'll shake any brave man's hand, Orion, but I hope to the bottom of the deepest ocean trench that we never meet again. And Orion just says, ha, I hope your wish is granted, Fish King. And Metron goes, this planet no longer requires our presence. We have shown you the shape of the world to come. Now you must find the way there. Farewell. And they, they disappear into a boom tube, leaving Kyle to just go, dude, I thought they'd never leave. <laughs> yep. And then there's just a little breather as the league are there and against all the odds, we did it again, they say. So Superman says, so guess we deserve some R&R after that. And the League don't really seem sure. Batman says, I think I prefer to just foil some robberies and muggings for a little while. Call me if you need anything. But then Oracle's big green hologram head appears in the middle of the room. <laughs> he says, uh, it's Dr. Destiny claiming he dreamt the JLA into existence and is threatening to de-imagine Detroit if you can't prove him wrong. <laughs> I'm out of here, guys. And Carl goes, Dr. Destiny? And Wally's like, ah, lightweight, 10 minute tops. And then you get this line from Superman that I always remember. It always pops into my head. Well, Batman, come on. We're the Justice League. You know you love it. And then we <laughs> we end on a hero shot of the Magnificent Seven just running into action. Kind of like a very... It's almost like a direct recreation of the very first issue cover mm. that uh, Porter did. And... Um, yeah, I can only imagine, like, at this point, Porter's hand just fell off. Um, 
as he collapsed in a sweating, crying pile on the floor. I mean, the it. end. The yeah, end. It literally it's over. says the end. That's we did it. it, PJ. Done. Wow. There we go. I mean, how do you? I mean, like, what do you even say? I, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's a really really good ending. It's do yeah. we do we now? Here's the thing. We're obviously going to do a wrap up. Good, good, good grief! And I just realised that my forearm is completely seized up because I've been holding this book for about yeah. two, two hours now. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! Ow. <laughs> <laughs> what I was going to propose, PJ, is um, we were obviously going to do a wrap up of the series, mm. and we've been talking for nearly two hours now. Did we want to? Doesn't have to, doesn't have to be a yes. Did we want to put a pin in this now? And have a proper breakdown when we next meet to give it the, the kind of justice it deserves. I think so. It's a lot of issue. We waffled for a lot at the beginning because we were trying to put off the end. And as we say, we are going to do a wrap up episode where we will be talking about our feelings on the Morrison run as a whole. Now we've completed it. Um, so yeah, let's uh, let's save our our final thoughts on World War Three for that. On the end of that. Oh, amazing story i i agree i mean like i i think anything we say right this moment would probably just be overshadowed by the sheer emotion of what we just went through yeah yeah um so yeah yeah we'll we'll do a proper wrap-up next week and maybe we'll just kind of we'll just end it here we'll go and pick it up then um pj i i i before we do our thank yous is there anything you'd like to shout about or promote uh check out safe space the um live play tabletop rpg show i i am a part of uh wardened by vince hunt we're playing the mothership rpg you can find it on youtube just search safe space rpg and um if i have anything to say i i i was uh i would say that yes the um i've recently taken receipt of the hardback super collected editions of after i think which um have just arrived from the printer so I look forward to sharing some photos of those soon and obviously getting beginning fulfillment and making it possible. You know, we've got a web score and everything. I'll be shouting about it. So yeah, big times, big times for everyone. Um, a massive thank you to Gavin Mitchell for drawing our incredible cover artwork. Uh, and to Elliot Red for composing and performing our wonderful theme tune, Justice. And of course, this isn't the end because we we need to wrap this up properly, and we will. And it's certainly not the end of the podcast. It's not even the end of the Morrison run. We're gonna we've got more to say, a lot mm. of emotions to process. Um, but until that happens, which will be soon, PJ, would you like to see us off in your own unique fashion? We're the JLA cast. You know you love it. 